Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Welcome back to part two of The Lunch Do. I know I ended the last episode on a bit of a downer. I apologize. It was something that needed to be said, but now it's time to move on. Life wasn't that bad, really, and although my dad was rather authoritarian, he was also an amazing man and a great character, and he did try his best even if he terrified me in the process. Anyway, let's get on to lighter things such as the lunch do. Now, not all lunches were grand affairs. During the week, our lunches were quite dour and even spartan, which is why we loved going to the farm manager for lunch on very rare occasions. Apart from Cyril Hall, who, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, was of Scottish descent, most, if not all, managers and assistants employed by my father were solid, hard-working Afrikaans folk. The first manager we had was a Mr. Van Hastine, a simple, resolute man with a large brood of wild and unruly kids. Even to a child such as I, The difference in class was palpable. Our homes dripped with chintz and bone china, our lawns rolling across to the swimming pool, our manicured garden borders and hunting trophies proudly displayed on whitewashed walls, our strict routine and silent lunches. Cut to the Van Hastings place, noisy and fun, Corrugated iron roof, often with a pumpkin or two growing on top, or an old car tyre thrown on top to stop the wind blowing it off. Furniture was practical and threadbare, clothing homemade and built to last. Shoes were rarely worn except when going to the Dutch Reformed Church in Sonoya. There were naked dips in the water tank to cool off and visits to the veggie garden to pick mulberries and cape gooseberries to be made into jam. These large, homely Afrikaans women had the best vegetable gardens I've ever seen, and always the most delicious aromas and smells coming from the Arga stove in the kitchen. Sticky sweet cook sisters dipped still hot into Lyle's golden syrup, wild honey gathered from the farm, Roast yams and pumpkins sprinkled with exotic spices such as coriander, star anise and cardamom, brown sugar and a hint of dried hot chilies, and the welcoming waft of baking cakes and scones with lashings of granadilla icing sugar. Lunches down at the assistant's home were worlds apart from those at the big house. Noisy, happy, unbridled assaults upon your senses. Afrikaans food never seen in our house. These were rural folk with uncluttered lives. 
US President John Fitzgerald Kennedy's visit to Dallas, Texas on November the 22nd, 1963 was aimed at boosting his re-election bid ahead of the 1964 presidential vote. Thousands turned out to see the iconic leader and his wife Jacqueline travel in a motorcade through downtown Dallas. At 12.30pm local time as the president's open-top limousine reached Dealey Plaza, three gunshots were fired at the convoy. Two bullets hit the president, one wounded him at the back of the When my dad throat, told Van Hastien that Kennedy had been assassinated, the, the response to my nonplussed father was, Oh, is that why there's a roadblock on the way to the club? Sometimes they ask me if I'm really happy now. Then again, this worked sure both ways, and when one day Mr. Van Hastin rushed up to my father and revealed in a shocked, hushed voice that Jim Reeds had died, my father's response was, Oh, really? Does he farm an umbuquiz? While most farm assistants were good, practical workers, there was always the odd exception to the rule. One chap was tasked to build our guest cottage at the bottom of the garden. Somehow he managed to put every single door in upside down. How do you even do that? Perhaps more surprising was the fact that they were never removed and put back on correctly, and all my life, we invited guests to stay in the shambolic cottage where all the door handles lifted up rather than down. Oddly, the loo handle also went up instead of down. Quite an accomplishment. The loo leaked constantly and my father's solution was to build an elaborate brick structure round the lavatory to stem the flow, ensuring that having a poo was an experience akin to sitting on the peacock throne with your feet dangling in the air. But quite possibly the most memorable thing concerning that guest cottage was the wildlife. I always felt so sorry for our guests from town. These hapless city slickers would arrive with a, a look of wonder and excitement as they unpacked their suitcases. But their euphoria was always short-lived and they would emerge next morning at the bell for breakfast, 8am on the dot, looking wild-eyed and somewhat blurry. Good morning, sleep well, we're all chirp. It was an in-house joke. Few townies could ever get used to the African night chorus and drama going on around them and above them. They would lie in bed petrified as the large picture mounted on the wall opposite would slowly move from one side to the other as if a poltergeist were present. Eventually, the head of a giant gecko would emerge, its tongue darting furtively as it tasted the air. We knew that if the 10,000 frogs singing and croaking all night outside their window did not keep them awake, then the nightly waterloo between the nine-foot mamba and the nest of grey African squirrels in the ceiling certainly would. 
In truth, the noise from this battleground was rather disturbing, even for a hardened African. Flakes of paint would often drift down onto their faces as guests lay mesmerised, listening to the squealing, scratching, squeaking, sliding, and occasional silence. It was that toe-curling final silence that really got to you. Why the squirrels chose to live in the ceiling near a black mamba is questionable, but perhaps losing one youngster to the mamba every few days was a small price to pay in the greater scheme of things. After all, the fluffy rodents had the run of the garden during the daylight hour and gave our dogs hours of unbridled fun chasing them across the lawn. And it wasn't always the squirrels that came up against snakes. Mum had a fair share run-ins. The garden was a paradise for cobras, pythons, boomslongs, puff adders and the inevitable black mambas. She believed that they would always get out of your way. Anyway, she would say, they've got as much right to live here as we do. And they get rid of the rats. You know, I've never ever seen a rat in our house. And for the most part, she was right. Besides, she had the Jack Russells to alert her of any danger. Despite that, she occasionally did come face to face with a snake, once even cutting one in half with her secateurs. We didn't have much of a menagerie compared to most other white African farm kids. I did have an aviary full of lovebirds brought up from the Zambezi Valley in woven straw baskets. They were beautiful but vicious little buggers. And if ever we tried to introduce other birds to the aviary, we would soon find the newcomers on the floor, their legs brutally snipped off by the jealous, rosy-faced parrots. So much for love. We finally released them into the wild and for years we could see the odd pair flying around the garden like brightly painted missiles. But I suspect most were eventually taken by kites or hawks. Some of the wildlife was seasonal, the swallows returning every year to the cottage, each season building their mud nest in the corner of the porch. The greatest striped swallow, Herundo cuculata, I think, has a beautiful steel blue upper and pale orange rump that shines and flashes as it ducks and dives over the fish ponds, gathering insects, twigs and water. That corner of the cottage belonged to them, and we would wonder how far they had migrated and whether they would still be there long after we were gone. One day the cattlemen brought in a tiny orphan serval. These beautiful spotted leopard-like cats were rare in that part of the world. Leo was loved to death, quite literally. The poor animals smothered, fed prime steak, coddled, cuddled, and finally, at the young age of 18 months, laid to rest at the bottom of the garden with the rest of the dead pets. No one told us that wild cats needed roughage. Apparently they need feathers and hair mixed into their food. But more than likely, Leo died of cat flu, pure and simple. We did have another orphan, a wild piglet. 
Again, he didn't last long. Don't worry, we didn't eat him. But I strongly suspect his habit of rooting up Mum's beloved flower beds sounded his death now. The saddest wild pet we had was a baby baboon. He never recovered from the shock of being plucked from his mother. Fortunately, we had the good sense to take him back to his troop. If memory serves me right, the little blighter was accepted back into the troop, despite having been in our captivity for several days. A happy ending for at least one creature in a long line of disasters. Snakes were part and parcel of growing up back on the farm, but it was my sister who seemed to attract them the most out of everyone in the family. Hers was the coolest and darkest of all the rooms in the house, so it was a mystery as to why these cold-blooded creatures gravitated to her room. On her bedside table, Mandy had a Spanish doll, possibly about... 18 inches high with a massive green ruffled flamenco dress. One winter holiday, Mandy kept complaining to Mum about a ghastly smell coming from her bedroom. Conda was brought in to clear the cupboard in case a mouse had crawled in and died. Nothing was discovered. The smell remained for the holidays. Then one morning, Conda came rushing through to the veranda, his face ashen. Medim, Medim, he called. Come quickly, Checha, Checha. My mum looked up from the bookkeeping, annoyed to be disturbed. It's the big doll, Medim. The doll is dancing. It has come to life. Oh, I'm so sorry about my Shona accent. It's the big doll, Medim. The doll is dancing. It has come back to life. both rushed through the house to Mandy's bedroom, and there, sure enough, the flamenco doll was dancing. Swaying as if it had a life of its own. And then suddenly, to their combined horror, from beneath the ruffles of the dress emerged a glistening African rock python, hungry from six months' hibernation and just inches from my sister's head. Pythons are a protected species and a quick phone call to Dave Dolphin, a local herpetologist, put paid to the danger and the smell. But that doll was never the same again. Mandley was still not entirely off the hook, as bored as we all had black tin trunks with our names stenciled on the top. For days before we returned to school, these would stand open in our room as we packed in a term's worth of uniforms and sports gear. The trunks would then be locked and chucked onto the back of the Land Rover and delivered to our school hostels. The hostel matron would be the first person to open the trunk to unpack the clothes. One start of term, my mother took a frantic and disturbed call from my sister's matron. 
Mrs. Wood, what on earth do you think you're trying to do? She screamed. Now, calm down, Mrs. Rioch, cautioned my mum. What do you mean I'm trying to have you killed? On opening the trunk, the matron had come face to face with a very angry, very venomous puff adder that must have slipped in between the jerseys and hockey skirts to hide. She was lucky to have escaped with her life. Often during the Christmas holidays, the Niao or witch doctor, would come up to the house, much to the excitement of all. This was the only time that strange masked men were given carte blanche to walk around the garden as if they owned the place. The Niao were fascinating characters, some with eyeless masks made entirely of guinea fowl feathers. Others made from colourful strips of cloth suspiciously similar to the patterns from my mum's missing blouse, while others preferred rather sinister masks in the form of animals and weird, ungodly creatures, often based on their totem or animistic protector. This wild spectacle was always accompanied by drummers and dancers and hordes of kids screaming and singing. It was wonderful. Bags of sweets and loaves of bread would be taken out of the kitchen and distributed. It was a carnival atmosphere. One particular year, the witch doctor and their entourage had been and gone. The dust had settled and I was lying by the swimming pool warming myself on the slate when my brother bellowed from the veranda, Snake! Alarm bells rang. I was blind as a bat and required glasses, which naturally were by my bed. Where else would they be? And where the fuck was that snake? Was it near me? Was I in danger? Panic! I scrambled and sprinted across the lawn towards the house and to the source of my brother's voice. Cobra, shouted my brother, pointing to a blurred coil right in front of me. Too late, my momentum was carrying me forward. I had no time to stop. I was almost on top of the hooded snake. I had no choice. The cobra was now in full attack mode, rearing its gorgeous head towards me, and in that moment... I managed to perform a florous grand jeté. It was a perfect leap, toes pointed outwards, legs tensed, arms akimbo, just like Gary Byrne, the accomplished Rhodesian ballet dancer whom I had seen perform live. Up, up and slowly over the cobra as it struck, its deadly fangs missing my feet by an inch. I was over and out of danger. The cobra made a dash for the prickly Parkinsonia tree and to safety. Duncan gave me a withering look and turned to take the rifle back to the gun cabinet when suddenly another blood-curdling yell came from the sitting room followed by the vision of my mum tearing across the floor screaming, Snake! What? Another snake? Are you kidding? Rushing into the sitting room, we were greeted with the sight of the Christmas cards on the mantelpiece fluttering to the ground. 
and there, entwined among the ornaments and cards, was a massive eight-foot black mamba. This time there was no escape for the serpent. Unfortunately, it managed to entwine itself around the legs of the TV. Duncan, don't you dare shoot it in the sitting room, shouted my mum as she peered over his broad shoulders. You'll bugger up the telly. That must have been the only black mamba ever to die a rather undignified death by 15 pellets from a Diana air gun. As to why the snakes were so active in the house at that time, I don't know, perhaps it was the drumming of the tom-toms. Maybe it was the time of year. Or maybe just coincidence. Hell, who knows? Maybe it was witchcraft. Well, that's what I like to believe. The last big lunch do I ever went to was in early 2001. It was the wedding of Paul Francis to Catherine Greenshields, scions of two notable families from Ambukwis. Trouble had been brewing for some time in the farm areas. War veterans, spurred on by Robert Mugabe, were beginning to occupy farms around the country, often in a very violent manner. People were rightly very twitchy and decidedly nervous. Some could see the end. Others buried their heads in the sand. If we had to go out with a bang, then this lunch do was a suitable occasion. This was a high society wedding with all the trimmings. The setting was the magnificently manicured Greenshields farm overlooking their dam at sunset. As the couple tied the knot, some 15 to 20 mares led by a single white Arab stallion galloped across the shallows of the water, a spume of spray behind them catching the late afternoon light like a billion diamonds scattering Egyptian geese in their path. The sight was both haunting and beautiful, and perhaps was the very moment that an error came to an end. Later that night, at the reception held in the gardens of their impeccable home, I found myself standing at the makeshift outdoor urinal having a pee, when a tall, well-dressed black man walked in and stood next to me. Not thinking much of it, I continued to relieve myself. But then I noticed that he wasn't doing the same. I glanced nervously across at him. I hadn't seen him at the party. Are you here for the wedding? I politely asked. No, he responded firmly, though not impolitely. I'm here for the farm. Concerned that he was a CIO agent, I quickly zipped up and fled back to the soiree. Weeks later, this farm, along with most of the others in the district, had been occupied, the landlords and tenants unceremoniously evicted. I have no doubt that the man at the urinal now lives in that beautiful house. The age of the lunch do was over. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. 
Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.